Blog Talk Radio. Get ready for the best shows on the internet. Edson Odell, the CEO, would like to welcome you to the Rift Radio Network. This work is protected by Creative Commons rights. Unforgettable shows, seven days a week. Um, I grew up in the South, 
and um, I was raised by my grandparents. And one movie that I remember growing up watching with my grandfather was the movie Walking Tall. Now, everybody loves a larger-than-life hero, and this movie definitely had one. Or did it? Tonight, I am welcoming a special guest on who knows quite a bit about the real story of Buford Presser. So I would like you all to join me in welcoming, welcoming Mike Elam to the Footprints Airwaves. And let's all find out if Buford Presser, Sheriff of McNary County, Tennessee, was he walking tall or was he falling short? Hi, Mike, and welcome to Footprints. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. It, it's my pleasure, definitely. Um, let's start out <clears throat> for, you know, maybe some listeners out there who have not seen the movie or, or heard the, the story. Tell us a little bit about the legend of Buford Custer. Well, Buford was a sheriff in McNary County from 1964 to 1970, and uh, they made the movie Walking Tall, which, uh, you know, a lot of people consider that to be, uh, you know, a true story. However, as you uh, watch the movie, it uh, says that uh, the movie was suggested on certain events in Buford's life. And, uh, you know, while Buford would often claim that the movie was 75 to uh, 90% accurate uh, You know when you uh, Get to really examining The story and all this and that Well you find out that uh, uh, It was a very Very highly embellished story And that uh, You know it just doesn't stand up to that Test of being a, a true story mm-hmm. he, uh, During that six years he was credited With uh, cleaning up the state line Area between uh, McNary County, Tennessee, and Alcorn County, Mississippi, which uh, there were a number of uh, clubs and such as that in the area. Uh, he was credited with uh, cleaning up the moonshine and uh, industry in uh, McNary County and, uh, you know, taking care of a lot of bootlegging problems. But, uh, uh, you know, when you really, like I say, get to looking into all this, you, you find out all of this is, uh, again, just really highly embellished. Mm-hmm. He was uh, allegedly shot eight times, stabbed seven times while he was sheriff. Uh, ironically, uh, there was only one witness to any of that, uh, and that was one of the stabbings who uh, was a county coroner and uh, said that uh, the uh, stabbing that uh, he was there and present for never happened. That uh, you know, it was basically told as a story to get votes during a, a, a campaign re-election as sheriff. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, he was uh, infamous for carrying a big stick uh, and enforcing the law with that. And uh, you know, you learned that uh, even Buford said that that was uh, just a Hollywood prop. And uh, you know, there's 
uh, no factual basis that he carried a big stick. Uh, you know, he was six foot six, weighed two hundred and fifty pounds, and uh, you know he was uh, a former wrestler, so he wasn't very imposing physically, uh, individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, to give everybody a little bit of, of a of a visual reference of how big he was, um, he was about the size of current wrestler Braun Strowman, correct? Maybe not as heavy, but oh, probably so. Yeah, yeah. That gives you an idea. You know, people can picture how big he was. You know, in the movie, of course, uh, Joe Don Baker played the role of Buford Pusser. And, uh, you know, he looked fairly formidable on the screen, but when you uh, see photographs of uh, the real Buford Pusser and Joe Don Baker side by side, you're really impressed with how big Buford actually was. Mm-hmm. But, uh, right. It's... Uh, you know, one of those things where uh, I don't know what all you're looking for tonight, but, uh, uh, you know, while he was sheriff, he uh, killed different people uh, under questionable circumstances. Uh, his wife was uh, killed in an ambush that was allegedly meant for him. And uh, here again, when you examine a lot of the available evidence, uh, and by that I mean uh, – going back through uh, and speaking with people who were uh, around him, near him, uh, you know, in the uh, hours right before when you examine the uh, photographs of uh, the car, the ambush uh, scene photographs, uh, there's a lot of uh, forensic evidence there to suggest that, uh, uh, you know, the ambush did not take place the way it's he described it whatsoever. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, one of the uh, people that he killed was a uh, female bar owner. I, I say bar owner. I, actually, she operated the motel and restaurant. And, uh, you know, uh, she was shot and killed uh, after uh, a couple from Illinois had reported that they had been robbed at this motel. And uh, one of those situations where, you know, you uh, – her autopsy report and find that uh, you know she was shot uh, in the uh, back basically uh, through the shoulder through the torso and then uh, the only shot that seemed to have come from the front was uh, one to her head and uh, you know, in uh, none of these instances was there a eyewitness to it even though there were people around you did have uh, uh, you know, people that would tell stories contradictory to, that were there and heard a lot of what happened, uh, they would uh, contradict Buford's story. Uh, and, you know, all this time he was alleged to have been taking uh, uh, payoffs from most of the uh, club owners. And I've uh, fortunately had the uh, uh, been able to find some of those people, interview them, and, uh, you know, learn what they could tell me about these things. And uh, uh, it's very different, very, very different than what we saw in Walking Tall. Right. Okay, let's, let's kind of start at the beginning. 
um, if you don't mind, and kind of work our way through the story. Um, but before we do that real quick, um, how did you become interested in this story, and, and how did you start researching it? Well, of course, uh, you know, in my younger days, I was involved in law enforcement myself. And, okay. uh, you know, uh, I was a deputy sheriff here in Benton County in Arkansas, which mm-hmm. is uh, approximately 300 miles from McNary County. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and uh, being in law enforcement, whenever that movie came out in uh, yeah. 1970, it's interesting in it. Went to see it. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I myself was kind of uh, like everyone else. I was impressed with the movie, impressed what he was alleged to have done, so on and so forth. And uh, Mm -hmm. for a lot of years, I just accepted that that is being basically a true story, realizing that Hollywood probably took some creative license and uh, to make it a little more dramatic than it really was. But... uh, you know, uh, became uh, more available, and you could start to do some research on there and looking up documents and photographs and uh, locating some of these people. Well, uh, you know, you got into uh, uh, finding them, uh, interviewing them, learning what their part in his story was, and that was a that was something that I found interesting is that. Uh, while it all started out to be about Buford, you found out that every one of these people that played their own little role have an interesting story of their own. Most of them have passed now. And uh, one of the big regrets that I have is that I didn't start this process a few years sooner so that I could have uh, found more of them while if they were still uh, alive and able to tell their own stories. But uh, uh, that's how I became interested in it is through my own uh, initial career in law enforcement. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about who the state line mafia was or state line mob. Well, the state line mob, uh, to understand it, uh, you know, the state line sat oh, three, maybe four miles north of uh, Corinth, Mississippi, uh, about 15 miles south of Selmer, the county seat of McNary County. And uh, you had a club on the south side of the uh, uh, state line that sat in Mississippi, which uh, was called the Plantation Club. It was operated by W.O. Hathcock. And uh, right across the uh, highway, uh, almost directly across the highway on the uh, uh, Mississippi side, sat the Shamrock Restaurant. And that was operated by W.O.'s aunt, Louise Hathcock. She also had, on the Tennessee side, just a few feet away, was the Shamrock Motel. And uh, she operated Mm -hmm. that also. She kept living quarters uh, there in the motel, even though she had a home in Corinth. Uh, On up the uh, highway, just a couple of hundred yards, was the uh, White Irish, which was, uh, well, several things over a period of time, but uh, you know, it was a bar, a tavern, if you will. And on down the uh, highway from that sat another one that belonged to uh, Hollis Jordan, which was basically a beer tavern. And, uh, you know, the uh, in the movie Walking Tall, uh, they referenced it as the lucky spot. 
And, uh, you know, that is a club, if you recall the movie, that whenever uh, Buford returns home, he goes into the lucky spot with a, a friend, uh, Ludy McVeigh. And uh, Ludy has uh, borrowed some money from Buford to do some gambling. And, uh, you know, Buford finds that the uh, game operator is uh, switching dice, all this and that. There's a fight, and that's when Buford gets his chest carved up. And, uh, you know, in researching all that, uh, it's been impossible for me to find any police reports, any medical evidence, any photographs, any witnesses, anybody that knows anything about uh, Buford having been attacked there as such. As a matter of fact, a couple of years later when he was uh, wrestling in Chicago, you know, there are several photographs of uh, Buford and his wrestling tights. And, you know, you look at every one of these photographs and you see absolutely no scars. Uh, right, after really those pictures. Question about that. Now, W.R. Morris was an author that wrote uh, his alleged official biography. And in his account, you know, he said that uh, it took 192 uh, stitches to close the wounds in uh, Buford's face and head. But yet, you know, you look at the photographs uh, from that time frame, you don't see any scarring, any uh, damage to his face at that point. So, uh, right. uh, like I say, you can't, you can't find anything that indicates that uh, uh, that ever happened except for Buford telling the story that it did. Uh, yeah. Street... Uh, or across the highway, 45. Well, I might tell you this also, that uh, back in those days, the Plantation Club was basically, uh, it was a, quite an entertainment venue. There was a lot of people that would go there, especially on weekends. Uh, you know, basically they had a, a bar and a dance floor. Uh, W.O. kept living quarters there. Uh, one thing you, you that I did learn is that there was uh, absolutely no place for a casino like it was shown in the uh, in the movie, uh, mm-hmm. so you just realize how embellished that part of uh, the Walking Tall story was. But right across the uh, the uh, highway, where his aunt operated the uh, uh, plantation, or pardon me, the uh, Shamrock. Uh, you know, the only thing that you could find as far as gambling over there was what they called the Razzle Game where, uh, you know, tourists would come in because 45 was the main artery from the uh, Gulf Coast up towards Chicago. And so uh, it was pretty heavily traveled, and uh, people would get lured into the restaurant because they would do uh, uh, breakfast for 49 cents. People would go in, and uh, they would be at the uh, check stand on occasions uh, uh, or at the cash register on occasions to – pay the bill, well, you know, uh, some gentleman there would give them an opportunity to win their breakfast for free by playing this razzle game, which was basically a cup with some dice in it. Uh, and as I understand it, each point on the uh, uh, die is counted as a half point, and you were supposed to roll to a certain number, which uh, seems like it would be easy to eventually do, but uh, I guess mathematically it's actually next to impossible. And, you know, the first roll would be free. And uh, 
somebody would get close and they think, well, if I do it again, you know, I might win. Only they'd have to pay for the second time and the third time and before long, uh, you know, they're out a lot of money. And But that's right. the extent of gambling that actually occurred down that way. Oh, wow. The uh, White Iris was uh, run by uh, uh, Carl Douglas White. They called him Toehead. Uh, and he was quite a figure. Uh, <laughs> all the women I've talked to uh, that remember Toehead just acted like that they were in awe of him because uh, he was supposed to be such a handsome man, well-dressed, always drove a Cadillac. And, uh, you know, uh, I had one lady tell me seeing Toehead drive down through Corinth was like seeing Elvis Presley drive down through there. Uh, (laughs) He was known as the uh, uh, Al Capone of the South. And, uh, you know, he was quite a figure, I guess. Uh, He'd been on the uh, 10 most wanted list in Texas. He had allegedly worked for Carlos Marcello as a driver from the uh, New Orleans mob. And, uh, you know, basically, uh, he was one of those people that comes to mind when you say Dixie Mafia. But uh, Right. Now, now, let me ask you real quick. Um, was the state line mob and the Dixie Mafia one and the same, or is it two se- totally separate entities? Oh, I put them in two separate categories. Uh, you know... <laughs> The way I look at the Dixie Mafia is that uh, they are a very loosely coordinated group of uh, criminals in the South. Uh, you know, it's, for instance, uh, let's say that uh, you're one of these people, you know a place that has uh, a safe that's got a lot of money in it, but they also have a security system, and uh, you would go out loosely connected band of criminals and you'd find somebody that could defeat the security system. Uh, you'd find somebody who knew how to open the safe and the three of you would uh, go in and break into the place and, and take the money and you may never work together again. On the other hand, you might. Uh, but it's it's not like that uh, they were a really cohesive gang. It's just like, hey, I, I need a Safe cracker today, you're a safe cracker, I can use you. Uh, whereas the state line mob, if you want to call them that, uh, you know, uh, they were more competitors than they were a mob. And that's one thing that people don't really seem to understand is uh, even the Hathcocks uh, being related. Jack and Louise built And uh, then mm-hmm. Joe built the uh, plantation club. But it wasn't like that Jack and uh, uh, W.O. really got along. I don't know if they saw each other as uh, competition for the same business that might be coming down that highway. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you'd have some of these club owners uh, tell you that, uh, no, you really needed to have a living quarters at your, your place of business. Because if you didn't have someone staying there, one of your competitors would uh, burn your club down. And uh, Mm -hmm. so uh, uh, 
I don't think a lot of people understand that that's kind of the way it was. Is these people were competing for business, and it uh, mm-hmm. it was actually more or less, I guess, uh, W. R. Morris that called them a gang or a mob, and it stuck. Gotcha. Now I've got a quick question here. Uh, you were talking about Toehead White. Um, it's my understanding that he was reported to be a close friend of Kirk Phoenix Jr., who was an Oklahoma outlaw. And while White was in jail serving time for bootlegging, he supposedly called Kirk Phoenix Jr. and hired him to kill Pusser. Do you know anything about if that's true or not? I've never found anything that would connect the two to that ambush. Uh, I do know that they knew each other, uh, that they, uh, you know, White spent a lot of time at the uh, uh, state line. Mix was there on an occasional basis. Uh, I think that they knew each other through Mike Village down in Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, but it's, uh, uh, I've never found a way to connect them to the ambush. As a matter of fact, when it comes to the ambush, I'm of the uh, personal belief that uh, that was more marital situation that went bad, and that uh, uh, to me it appears that Buford was behind his wife's death. That there was not really an ambush at all. Talk, talk to us a little bit about your belief on that. Well, during the time that I've been researching this. Uh, one of the acquaintances that I had made uh, that was kind of ironic was uh, Dennis Hathcock. Dennis uh, was W.O. Hathcock's son. And, uh, you know, at the time that all this occurred, uh, you know, uh, he was approximately 15 years old, maybe 16. And, uh, you know, one night, uh, uh, the night before the ambush, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, they, he and a friend of his, Johnny Harrison, had a game that they played where they'd sometimes follow Buford around. Uh, Dennis had a motorcycle. And, for instance, that night, uh, they were uh, in Eastview, which is midway pretty much between Selma and the state line, because they knew that's where Buford would often meet one of his girlfriends. And, uh, you know, it was at a state uh, highway maintenance lot, and there was a pile of uh, gravel chat that they used for roads. Well, they uh, parked the motorcycle behind that, kind of got up on this uh, uh, pile of chat. And, uh, you know, sure enough, Buford shows up. A little bit later, one of his girlfriends shows up. And, uh, you know, they had words. And uh, he told her to mm-hmm. get the hell out. You know, she left. He pulled out of the parking uh-huh. lot, only around and pulled right back in. Uh, after he pulled in, there was a 65 Chevy Biscayne with uh, Oklahoma tags. Two people in the vehicle. The driver gets out, opens the uh, trunk, takes out two guns. Buford takes them, puts them in his car, and they both leave. Then uh, mm-hmm. Johnny follow uh, Buford into Selmer, and uh, uh, you know they soon go to a, a house where they he thinks that. Uh, his girlfriend might be now since he chased her off. Uh, 
and according to them, he appeared to be high on something, uh, tried to uh, get her out of this house where she was alleged to be. And uh, she finally comes out, runs across the the ways to her own house and manages to get inside before Buford can really uh, uh, get her. It was almost like, uh, according to the story, that he was trying to abduct her. Uh, After that, he goes to a uh, service station there in town, uh, gets his vehicle fueled up, makes a phone call, and then he heads off to uh, uh, Adamsville where his residence was. Well, at the same time, I had talked to uh, LaVon Plunk, who was Pauline's best friend. And, uh, you know, she uh, told me that... uh, uh, Buford and Pauline were separated at the time. That Pauline was living in a motel in Savannah, which is a nearby town. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, LaVon had taken uh, her home that night uh, to pack up some of her belongings because she was uh, going to leave Buford and uh, go home to Hayside, Virginia, take the kids with her, and uh, uh, just leave Buford. And uh, LeVon said she was so afraid of Buford herself that uh, she told Pauline when they pulled up in front of the residence that she was going to park a little ways down the street when uh, Buford or uh, Pauline had her stuff together to give her a little signal and she'd drive down and uh, they'd get the stuff loaded in the car real quick and be gone. And mm-hmm. LeVon said that she had not been there hardly any length of time down the street until Buford came by. We don't know. For sure, if that call uh, that Buford made was to find out if Pauline was at home or whatever, because at that point, when he was in Selmer, he did take off for Adamsville. And mm-hmm. uh, LeVon, that, uh, you know, Buford passes by, uh, goes into the house and is there just a minute or so, and she hears a single gunshot. And uh, LeVon said, you know, I got scared. I left. I didn't know what happened. But she said, you know, I was always afraid that he might kill me. And uh, said a couple of hours later, her husband, who ironically is one of Buford's deputies, uh, calls LeVon and uh, uh, tells her that, well, Pauline was uh, killed in an ambush meant for Buford. And, uh, you know, LeVon for years didn't really want to talk about what had happened that night because of uh, the uh, politics there in McNary County, I guess, you know, with the... his family still being there, so on and so forth. Uh, she just wasn't really vocal about what all had happened. When I interviewed her, she was uh, at an age where it didn't make her any difference any longer. Uh, she mm-hmm. wasn't afraid to tell the story. Uh, right. Now, in that area, is there, I like to call it a good old boy club, where, um, you know, there's certain people that'll get away with just about anything because of, of who they are. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. yeah I, I think you saw that all uh, all over the story. You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Buford had very, very few paid deputies. Uh, Jim Moffat was uh, his chief deputy, his uh they had known each other for a while, and Jim was quite a bit older than Buford, and uh, you know, really had quite a bit of respect for 
for Jim from what I've learned. Uh, he also had uh, Petey Plunk, who was an uh, uh, insurance salesman, a car salesman. You could uh, got him to uh, be a deputy. Uh, but, you know, back in those days, you also had a lot of people that, uh, uh, hey, they'd uh, uh, call themselves a deputy. They'd carry a card, you know, all this and that, but they weren't paid. They weren't on any type of schedule. You know, it was just one of those honorary type things. Uh, mm-hmm. And you also saw that among the uh, club owners. Uh, Buford, from what I've learned, was, you know, friends with a number of them, uh, of the uh, uh, club owners that I've been able to uh, interview. I had one lady that owned uh, the Anchor Club uh, that you never really hear about in the story, and I'm not sure why, because uh, everybody always seemed to focus on the clubs at the state line, but... Uh, when I interviewed her, I, I just asked, I said, I understand that uh, uh, a lot of club owners uh, had to make payoff to, to Buford. And uh, she said, well, yeah, that's true. And uh, she told me she paid him $500 a, a month. And, uh, you know, you think back about the value of $500 in uh, the mid to late 60s, that was a tremendous amount of money. And uh, she, I considered Buford a friend. Said to me that five hundred dollars was just a a, uh, a good business investment. You know, I paid him. I said here in uh, McNary County, all we're supposed to be able to sell was beer. Said I could sell hard liquor. Uh, You know, we were supposed to close at twelve. I could stay open as late as I wanted. Uh, I could be open on Sunday while a lot of the other clubs had to be closed down. Uh, You know, and. I would find out if uh, there were going to be any raids because, you know, you also not only had uh, McNary County that had jurisdiction there to do raids, but you also had the uh, alcohol beverage control from the state that would conduct raids. And, uh, you know, apparently if uh, one of these clubs that paid is the story, uh, uh, you were paying Buford, you'd know about the raids before they happened, so uh, you could be operating legally when it happened. Uh, right. You know, I, I interviewed, uh, for instance, uh, a gentleman, Steve Atkins. And uh, he had married a lady, Catherine, who owned a club, Catherine's Club in Selmer. And uh, he was telling me, he said, you know, uh, Catherine had to pay him $150 a month. And uh, still, yeah, $150 back in the mid-60s was quite a bit of money. And uh, said uh, Buford would only take it from her. He'd never accept it from me. Uh, and said, you know, uh, basically, uh, he'd look the other way when, you know, hard liquor would be served. And uh, 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 Skeet absolutely hated Buford. Uh you know, one time he uh, thought about uh, killing Buford himself, you know, just because uh, from his point of view, hey, we're taking all the risk by you know, uh, serving hard liquor and doing some of the things that we're doing, trying to make a living. And all Buford has to walk in, do is walk in and say, I want $150 to let you do it. And it was like they were working for their ill-gotten game. But Buford was all he had to do was walk in and say, "Hey, I need the money." And uh, 
it was like that with a lot of different clubs down there. Uh, uh, Donna's, Butler's, uh, Paul Moore's place, uh, just different ones would tell you that. Uh, and again, some of them, <clears throat> some of the uh, club owners uh, really disliked Buford, and some of them considered him a friend. I guess it all depends on uh, how you look at what your money bought uh, from him. But uh, even Paul Moore, that was uh, he would he told me he said you know Buford was a friend of mine, and uh, he said you know uh, uh, Buford told me what he expected as far as how that uh, things were supposed to I was supposed to do things, and he said you know he didn't want to keep the hard liquor out in plain sight. That everybody knew that you sold. Uh, the critical of uh, uh, and he would come in, uh, and rarely, rarely did you could ever wear a uniform. He was usually uh, dressed in a, a suit or at least a sports jacket. And uh, Paul told me said a lot of times he would come in, and uh, you know. Uh, Somebody might be making a little bit too much noise to suit him. He'd ask him to uh, keep the noise level down. And said, the problem is he'd never identify himself as the sheriff. Uh, the fight would start, and uh, he'd rough somebody up. And, uh, and uh, Paul was critical of him for not identifying himself as being the sheriff before that fight going. Uh, but you saw a lot of that. The... Uh, White Iris that was run by Toehead, and this is something that I really found interesting, is that, uh, you know, I've always heard this rumor that when Buford lived in Chicago, you know, uh, at one time he wanted to be a mortician and went to Worsham's uh, School of Mortuary Science in Chicago. And while he was there, he worked, uh, allegedly worked in a bar, and uh, he also wrestled professionally. And, uh, you know, the rumor is that Toehead White worked at the same bar where Buford worked as a bouncer. And I really can't find anything to confirm all this. But in Toehead White's FBI files, uh, you do see that they lived in the same area at the same time. So, uh, but, you know, here a couple of years later, uh, both are back in McNary County at the same time. Toehead is operating the White Iris, and uh, you have uh, an agent from the uh, TBI or the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation that's looking for Toehead White and goes to the White Iris, and, and Buford is there, as is Toehead, who was going by the name Carl Douglas. And so mm-hmm. this is agent for uh, Toehead, and, uh, you know, Toehead says, well, I'm, I'm – don't know anything, you know, about him. He's not here. And, uh, you know, while uh, Buford is standing right there and never tells the uh, TBI agent, this Carl Douglas is Toehead White. So, you know, you could see that they had a friendship going just from uh, the documentation there and the TBI files when they finally figured all this out, that uh, Toehead was indeed this Carl Douglas. Buford was aware of and not tell a TBI agent that, hey, this is him, uh, which shows, uh, I think, a certain amount of conspiracy there. 
Right. And then, then you also had uh, the fact that, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that Toehead spent some time in prison. Mm-hmm. And basically what that boiled down to is uh, he had what they referred to as a uh, three-state moonshine operation, where uh, he had a huge moonshine still going. And it was in McNary County. Uh, you know, uh, the word is that uh, it was going to be raided. And uh, uh, apparently, according to the story, that uh, you could tip Toehead off. And uh, Toehead moved this operation to Chimico, Mississippi, uh, County, Mississippi. And, uh, you know, shortly after that, kind of when they had a falling out. Uh, they didn't really seem to get along after that, and you can only guess the reason why. I know that they were both dating a uh, the same woman, and that there was a little friction there. But I just always have kind of wondered if it was one of those situations where uh, after Toehead moved his moonshining operation from McNary County to Tishomingo County, that you know, when uh, possibly Buford expected to pay off, Toehead would tell him, well, I'm not operating in your county anymore. And maybe that caused some friction. It's hard to say. But I do know that uh, about uh, six weeks after he moved the uh, operation to Tishomingo County, well, the authorities down there uh, raided the place, got Toehead and several others, and Toehead served uh, uh, about four years' prison time for uh, uh, moonshine. Right. Wow. It's. It, I guess it's one of those things. It's. Uh, it's such an interesting story because nothing is comes close to like what it was in the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. A good example of that would be, uh, for instance, when you uh, would kill Louis Hathcock. You know, in the movie, basically, they showed that uh, it was right before Christmas, and jewelry salesman goes in, and Callie uh, uh, Hacker is the name that they used in the movie for the uh, woman that run this place. And uh, she's sitting there at the bar all depressed because in the movie, Buford's been so hard on her that she's not making the kind of money that she's accustomed to making in her club. And uh, so in the movie, she uh, uh, has one of her minions go out and take that jewelry case out of this uh, jewelry jewelry salesman's car. And then when he calls the sheriff's office to report a robbery, Buford comes down. And uh, as he walks through the door, uh, this Callie Hacker is sitting there with a shotgun in the crowded bar and uh, tries to kill Buford, and he ends up shooting her and, and uh, he shot basically almost between the eyes well in reality uh, the real story is that uh, you know it's winter time they've got the uh, worst ice storm that they've had in a hundred years in that area this couple from uh, Illinois is supposed to be returning home from the Gulf Coast somewhere and uh, they at the camera uh, hotel, get a room, spend the night, and uh, the next day, uh, they discover that 
with my first missing. And uh, so they go up to the front desk to inquire about it. And uh, uh, Louise is there, and according to their report, uh, uh, Louise threatened to uh, them with bodily harm, had a gun, all this and that, so they called the sheriff's office. Uh, comes down along with uh, his two full-time deputies all in one car. This is something I always had a little trouble dealing with is that uh, here you've got the worst ice storm in 100 years and uh, you put the sheriff and his only two full-time deputies in the same vehicle to go down and and uh, investigate you know, a, a robbery of a little over $100. And it's kind of like mm-hmm. what happens is Anything else happens in that county, you know, there's not going to be anybody to respond because all three of them are together. Uh, at any rate, at that point in time, Buford is a, alleged that uh, that he did not carry a, a gun on a regular basis. And that Jim Moffat uh, suggested to him that, you know, he wear one when he goes in. And he does. And, uh, you know, they tell uh, Louise that uh, they have a warrant for her arrest, so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, uh, she's a little bit intoxicated, and she invites Buford into her living quarters and says, you know, you come back here, I'll tell you everything that's going on down here, you know, trying to, like she's going to talk her way out of trouble. Now, according Mm -hmm. to Buford, uh, they go in, and uh, she pulls out a gun. She fires at uh, Buford. Uh, he falls back across the bed and onto the floor, basically, as the bullet goes through the window and lodges into a uh, support post for the awning outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, she then steps up over him, uh, you know, pulls the trigger a second time, and uh, the round does not fire. And he pulls out his gun, and by his description, he said that the first shot nipped her in the shoulder. Uh, second shot hit her torso, and he never really did talk much about the third shot. And, uh, you know, hey, I was like everybody else. I bought into that story for for quite a while until I started checking mm-hmm. uh, into it. And uh, uh, Barbara Bivens uh, came up with a copy of her autopsy report. And, uh, you know, uh, you're looking at it, and you look for the right to that struck her in the neck and shoulder and uh, it comes from the back side exits out the front which is I thought was strange second shot uh, went a couple of inches below her left shoulder blade and exited out uh, under her right breast and then of course mm-hmm. the third shot to her head went into her jawline and out the back of her skull and obviously, she was laying on the floor whenever that shot was fired. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I got real curious about all of this because nobody saw the shooting. Uh, although there was a gentleman who uh, was a little bit of a drunk. And uh, for that, he pretty much was discredited. But his story was that uh, he was in the back office right next to her living quarters. And he heard everything that was going on, and he said that Louise was begging for her life when he heard 
Buford's gunfire first, and because uh, he was using a 41 Magnum. Uh, on the other hand, Louise had a little uh, uh, lightweight 38 airweight, and uh, said that after he heard Buford's gunfire, that he heard uh, uh, Louise's gun make a single shot. And uh, so, you know, you get curious about the discrepancies in what Buford said, the location of the wounds, and uh, so on and so forth, and you're looking at the autopsy reports. So I called uh, Dr. Jerry Francisco, who was the medical examiner that did uh, help with the autopsy. And, uh, you know, I'm saying, how does this case go to a grand jury when there's an autopsy report here? And, uh, you know, they say that Buford had to kill her in self-defense. And uh, we were talking about it, and I said, you know, the first shot was to the shoulder and neck area. And uh, Francisco stopped and he said, now, he said, you know, I didn't say which shot was in a good order. I said, well, I'm going from what Buford's statement was. He said the first shot nipped her in the shoulder. And I said, it's clearly a, uh, you know, a shot to the back. As basically the second one, it was a little bit of a diagonal shot. And, uh, he said, well, let me tell you what the protocol was back then. He said, you know, uh, uh, most counties, you know, they'd have a medical examiner. They might have a coroner, but they weren't trained to do autopsies. So they would send the bodies to either Memphis or Nashville. And he said, I got hers in Memphis. And uh said, you know, uh, uh, myself and another doctor did the uh, autopsy. And uh, basically uh, what we did back then is we would send a report to the local medical examiner and uh, in the event of uh, you know a trial or testimony that was needed the uh, medical examiner would just interpret what our autopsy report said and uh, you know you're still wondering about that and uh, you have that in the back of your mind and one day I contact uh, uh, a gentleman, James Opal Gray, who served as sheriff a couple of terms after Buford left office. And uh, I was hoping to get some information about the uh, state line from him, but, you know, he was telling me, you know, uh, back in those days I was a farmer. I, I ran for sheriff because the party asked me to, so on and so forth. And uh, he said, you know, I really never had any problem out of the, the state line when I was farming. He says, you didn't go to the state line, well, you'd have had no problems. And uh, he said, you know, when I was sheriff, I didn't have any problems down there, but I didn't think I was going to get anything out of him. And then, uh, you know, I was talking about that shooting. He said, well, I I served on that grand jury that uh, investigated that shooting. And I, you know, felt like I kind of struck a gold mine. And you know, uh-huh. I, asked him, I, I asked him, I said, how is it that you could have that autopsy report, see that she was basically shot in the back and, call it justified homicide. And he was really kind of quiet for a moment. He said, what autopsy report? And I said, well, you know, the state did an autopsy. So we didn't see an autopsy report. Now, he tried to stay, I guess, within the guidelines that you need to stay in once you've been on a grand jury. He didn't want to volunteer a lot of information. But at the same mm-hmm. time, curious about this autopsy report because he didn't know anything about it. And, uh, right. you know, basically said what we saw were photographs, 
that were close ups and he said, you know, we were just ordinary people, farmers, merchants, whatever. And uh, we didn't really know what we were looking at. The story that they gave us sounded good. So we just kind of went with the flow that, hey, Buford had to shoot her. But he said, you know, that autopsy report, had we seen that, would have probably uh, made everything different. But he said, you know, we we never knew it existed. So uh, uh, Buford got out of uh, a murder charge that way. They returned a no true bill, which just basically means that there's no reason to uh, uh, prosecute. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the way that went down. Wow. Now, let me ask you this. Um, yeah, I was talking to my sister earlier about uh, tonight's show, about you being on, and what you and I had talked about a little bit about on the phone. And um, she was saying that from what she remembers of Walking Tall and all that, Buford didn't carry guns much. That's why he caught carried the big, big stick. Now, did he not have a no. trunk full of guns? <laughs> no, pardon me. I, I missed who you said you were speaking with. Oh, with, with my sister. Oh. Uh, actually, Buford would uh, was pretty open about the the big stick, he, he would tell you that, uh, and it's in several magazine articles and newspaper articles where he said that was a Hollywood prop, that he never carried a big stick. Now, allegedly, he didn't carry a gun often at first. However, uh, I've got a list of probably 30 firearms that he owned. And, uh, you know, uh, uh for instance, one of his uh, weapons that he would carry with him quite often uh, was an AR-15, which some people think may have been converted to being fully automatic. Uh, wow. Similar to an M- M-16 of the Vietnam era. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, you take by 1966 when he killed uh, Louise, uh, you know, he carried a gun. And mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, all that is uh, about the stick is just, uh, that's a total farce. It's just simply not true. Closest that you come to him using uh, a stick is uh, allegedly he was going to uh, uh, arrest six, uh, I believe it was moonshiners. And, uh, uh, you know, they got in a fight and he grabbed a fence post. Don't know if that story is true, but that's the only one that I am aware of where they used an instrument like this at all. Uh, but like I said, he, he would uh, he would tell in magazine articles that, that that was all Hollywood as far as the big stick. I guess it made for a good play, you know, for a southern sheriff to to, to have done something like that. Well, we're going to go ahead. It's close to our break time, so we're going to go ahead and take um, about a ten or eight to ten minute break. We do have a caller on hold when we come back. Um, but for now, we're going to listen to a couple of songs. The first one we're going to listen to is one that uh, Mike suggested to me, called "McNary County Line" by Ruckus. Correct. 
Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Okay, and then I have Boys from Alabama by Drive-By Truckers. Um, so go ahead and get yourself something to drink. Uh, use the restroom. Do whatever you need to do to make yourself comfortable. Come right back here because we, we have more truth about the Buford Custer story. We'll see you guys in just a few minutes. Get some paranormal soup every Sunday night with Jason Bland at 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, only through YouTube. Produced by Midwest Paranormal. Catch him via live Facebook every Sunday night. Always get your bowl of paranormal soup every Sunday.
the Skeleton Key Mystical Shop, found only on Facebook, out of Blossom, Texas. Find all your unique religious, spiritual, and metaphysical items, including the Beginner Altar Kit. Find them today on Facebook. Remember, you've always had the key.
tune in to the RIP Network each day of the week for terrific and mind-stimulating material from all of our hosts. Here's a quick rundown of the weekly schedule. Starting on Sunday, 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, The Orion Effect with Howie O'Dell and Kat Agnon. Then on Monday at 9, Rogue Talk Radio with Sheila Gay and Kirby Dubris. Then on Tuesday, 9 o'clock, Footprints with Lisa Renaga. Thursday at 9, Paraversal Universe Radio with Kevin and Jennifer Molly. Friday, 9 o'clock, The Blunt Trucker with Chad Logan. And finally, on Saturday at 9, Bridging the Gaps with Shelly and Jeff Presley. Also, tune in at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on The Rift for Retro Reflections. These DJs are kicking it old school, playing music across all genres, and playing the greatest hits from classic rock, country, alternative, and even from meditation. Become a cosmic traveler on The Rift. Don't forget to subscribe to the RIP Network here on Blog Talk Radio to receive our daily notifications on our shows and feature events. Want to know more? Become a traveler on the RIP by following us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our website from the link on our Blog Talk page. Okay, welcome back to Footprint. We heard um, McNary County Line from Ruckus and Boys from Alabama from Drive-By Truckers. And I am joined tonight by Mike Elam, who is a man who knows the real story of Buford Pusser. Welcome back, Mike. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. All right, we had a caller, but um, not anymore. I'm not sure what happened there. Um, but I got a question coming out here that I need, that I was going to ask you about here. Um, what is the conversation outside the old hickory at the 2 a.m. meeting between Buford and his wife? Well, you know, prior to the ambush, and I'm not terribly sure of the exact time frame, but uh, mm-hmm. there were two ladies that uh, were there at the old hickory. Uh, they were out front. Uh, it's late in the evening. And mm-hmm. uh Pauline Pesser comes looking for Buford, and uh, she confronts him in a rather lengthy conversation. Uh, you know, he had been uh, out with one of his girlfriends, and he was claiming that uh, you know he hadn't been. Uh, but Pauline knew that not to be the truth, and uh, it was a uh, uh, young lady that was black that was uh, apparently really attractive. Both and Toehead were uh, mm-hmm. at the same time. 
But uh, Hubert was trying to convince Pauline that, no, he hadn't been with her, hadn't seen her, you know, all this. Uh, mm-hmm. And at that point, well, Pauline threatened to uh, uh, expose all this, that he was, uh, uh, you know, having affairs, sleeping around on her, so on and so forth. And Buford, uh, uh, you know, then uh, threatened to, uh, according to these two ladies, threatened to kill Pauline, told her she wouldn't live another day if if she tried to expose uh, all these things about him. Uh, Junior and Shirley Smith on the old hickory, and, uh, you know, they were friendly with Buford. Uh, They were some of the club Mm -hmm. owners that got along with him. Uh, Mm Mm-hmm. The exact time frame, I've never really been able to just absolutely pin it down. But, you know, it was shortly after that that uh, all this with uh, Von Plunk occurred uh, about taking mm-hmm. her by the house and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, then the ambush coming along right after that. So, you know, you've got, there's one of those things. It's a matter of, uh, I guess, of connecting the dots that you have that conversation and the threat from Buford that he would kill her and she wouldn't live another day, and uh, obviously she didn't. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know of a way to connect those things other than just tell that story, and uh, uh, you know. But it, uh, uh, one of the uh, ladies that was involved in that, uh, overhearing that conversation, uh, you know, is no longer with us. Her name is Barbara Bivens. And she wrote a book called Tommy and Me, where she uh, uh, goes pretty much along with the uh, story that I'm telling tonight. You know, uh, uh, Junior and Shirley Smith were uh, uh, her aunt and uncle. And so, you know, she was Mm -hmm. close to in that regard. Plus, she was married to a gentleman named Tommy Bivens that – you know, was arrested uh, along with uh, Towhead as part of the three-state moonshine operation. Now, you know, there, uh, Bivens didn't really suffer any real jail time because he was, basically what he had done was uh, uh, help move the steel from, or parts of it from McNary County to, uh, uh, to Chemingo County. But, you know, they're close enough to the story that, you know, there's parts of it that they know that, uh, uh, they've shared like that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, with you working in law enforcement, okay, um, I'm going to ask your professional opinion. If this was a case that you had been working on, do you think, how, how would you have taken that conversation and what happened? Oh well, obviously, you, put, you know, you would consider that as a as something that you would really want to follow up on. I mean, after all, you've got two ladies here that overhears uh, Pauline threaten to expose his corruption, and you, uh, they also overhear Buford uh, telling her, you know, you do that and you won't live another day. Obviously, you know, uh, in just a matter of hours, uh, she's dead. And uh, uh, so, you know, that's just another one of those things that comes from yet another source uh, that kind of ties things 
bound together is for a reason. A lot of people don't understand that, uh, uh, and that's one thing that I've, I, I really didn't learn until uh, I was well into the story that uh, Buford and Pauline were separated and that uh, mm-hmm. Pauline was going to leave him, reported corruption, because uh, she felt like that her chance to keep Duana, their only biological child. Pauline had two children when uh, she and Buford got married, Mike and Diane. And mm-hmm. uh, then uh, later uh, in their marriage, well, Duana came along. So Duana was uh, Buford's only biological child. The movie completely left Diane out. Uh, they didn't have her character, didn't mention her. Uh, in the movie, and allegedly Buford and Diane had not been getting along, so uh, that had a lot to do with her character not being in the movie. But, uh, you know, she came into play a little bit later, I guess, into the story. I was uh, spoke with uh, a, a friend of hers. They had attended uh, college together in Jackson. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this friend told me, says, all I can tell you is... Uh, what Diane told me, and of course, I view this as uh, kind of a story that ties in. Uh, I don't have any way to to really vet it out to any great degree or prove it, but mm-hmm. you know, history is that uh, today Diane is uh, depressed uh, and just looking like somebody that uh, needed a friend to talk to. So, this uh, lady tells me that she just let Diane, you know, tell what was on her mind. And she was telling a story about how that uh, uh, she thought Buford had killed her mom. And you got to keep in mind that this is uh, oh, about 1969, 1970, somewhere in through there. And that was well before the movie had been made. And mm-hmm. so it's not like it's a well-known story at all. But she was saying, you know, that... Uh, she had been uh, staying at Memphis because she and Buford didn't get along, so uh, Pauline had allowed her to stay with Buford's sister in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the day before the ambush, Pauline called to uh, uh, Diane and uh, told her that she needed to come home, that she and Buford were having troubles, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, and she didn't really explain to her everything that was going on, but Diane did go home. And uh, one of those things where uh, she said that, and it kind of ties in with uh, LaVon's story, said she was inside the house when uh, LaVon threw the gunshot. Uh, and so she was afraid to look out the door and see what was going on. And uh, said she heard the front door open. Uh, she did look out a window, and she saw Buford half-carrying, half-dragging uh, Pauline out to uh, his Plymouth Fury, uh, puts her in the front seat, and then he starts back toward the house, kind of scared Diane. And uh, because all she knew, Buford was coming back in to get her, but said he stopped down the sidewalk and picked up uh, – Pauline shoes that had fallen off her feet and walked over on the passenger side, set him inside the car, and then he got in the car and left. Uh, 
ironically, one of the photographs that I have of the crime scene uh, shows that pair of shoes. And, oh, wow. Uh, the car is uh, sitting there. The door is open, and her shoes are sitting there. It's You know what it's like when you reach down on the floor, you pick up a pair of shoes with one hand. You just kind of uh, they're sitting there side by side. You just pick them up and mm-hmm. move them. And so they mm-hmm. look like that they have been placed in the car exactly the way that this uh, lady described that Buford uh, did that. And they were in such a position that you realize that, I, or, uh, that Pauline didn't just slip them off her feet while she was in the car. Uh, that's just one of those little things you that, that caught my eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at any rate, uh, uh, the night of the uh, ambush, Buford did take a very unusual route. His story was that uh, they were at home in bed and asleep, and uh, they get a phone call. With this uh, out of disturbance at Hollis Jordan's beer tavern. Now, mm-hmm. Paul Tucker, his dad, was uh, working at the jail that night, and he he claimed that uh, uh, they'd called up there a couple of times and uh, tried to uh, get him to send Buford out to this disturb- disturbance, and Carl, uh, you know, I have an article where he says, you know, after two o'clock, I wouldn't send Buford out unless I felt like it was absolutely necessary. Well, mm-hmm. then they call uh, Buford's home, and uh, he gets up, and allegedly, they are going on vacation the next day, as Buford would tell his story. And the Pauline wanted to go along because she wanted to make sure that he didn't get tied up and uh, be late getting away. Another story that was mentioned was that uh, uh, she was afraid for his safety when he would go out, so she wanted to go with him. I'm not sure what a 110-pound lady would do to protect a 250-pound man, but, you know, that's, that's what I'm thinking. There. But at any rate, uh, they leave Adamsville, and uh, they go through a series of uh, back roads that takes them over to Highway 57 and then more back roads over to uh, uh, New Hope Road. Mm-hmm. Problem found with that is it's kind of like why not get on 64 because Buford was going to drive terribly fast. Uh, Paul right. was even said to be afraid to ride with him you know because he would always drive so fast. So the quickest way to get to Hollis Jordan to me would have been to get on Highway 64 going to Selmer uh, take 45 and straight down and you're there. But instead they mm-hmm. take this convoluted uh, system of back roads and you know, I was always curious, did he do that to avoid, you know, driving any further through Adamsville than he had to, and certainly avoiding Selmer where somebody might see him and and uh, want to visit with him for a minute, and here he's got Pauline in the car in whatever shape that she happens to be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seemed like he was uh, uh, avoiding, you know, uh, any place where there might be people. The other problem I had was that uh, – uh, you know, he changed his story later from going to Hollis Jordan's to uh, the call being on uh, New Hope Road. And uh, it was about oh, uh, three to four miles up New Hope Road off of 45 is where the ambush took place. And mm-hmm. uh, 
so he changed the location from saying he was responding to a disturbance at uh, uh, Hollis Jordan's the New Hope Road. But you know, in the movie, would there have been would there have been a record of the call if there had been one? Well, that's the that's the odd part. Uh, you know, that you uh, find out that a call from the state line area down there would have been on a current exchange, which would have made it long distance to Selma and uh, and certainly to Adamsville. But, you know, uh, you know, nobody could ever find a record of calls being made either to his home or to the sheriff's office to confirm the, the story that he and Carl told. Uh, you know, there may have been, but nobody's been able to establish uh, I was told by one person that checking into the story that they were told by the uh, uh, manager of the telephone company that uh, they had no record of it. I haven't checked in uh, to that myself because now everybody's gone. Nobody really remembers, you know, those times well and anything like that. Uh, but irregardless, you know, uh, Buford's story about the uh, ambush was that uh, he was uh, uh, went down New Hope Road and that uh, he uh, got to uh, the first ambush site and said all of a sudden headlights came on and gunfire started and uh, Pauline was shot in the head said that he laid on the gas and uh, thought he had lost the car that was following him. He had driven 2.1 miles on down the road from the first ambush site, and according to Buford, he pulled over to check on Pauline. He opened his door, started to get out the car, and all of a sudden, the uh, ambush car was on him again, pulled up beside him, stopped, and I have newspaper articles where Buford claimed that he reached out, grabbed a hold of the uh, barrel of the rifle, and kind of wrestled for it. And uh, they continued to fire. All the bullets went through uh, the uh, two driver's side windows in the front seat and the back seat and also exited through uh, the uh, passenger's windows on the opposite side of the car. There was one bullet that uh, went through the windshield over on Pauline's side. The back glass was still in fully intact and not damaged at all. Uh, one bullet you know, uh, went into the dash of the car. They, We have what they call the McLeese letter, where uh, the assistant director of the uh, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation uh, told where all the shots went. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, one of the questions I have is, uh, you know, the weapon that was used was a 30 caliber carbine. And, uh, you know, 12 shots were fired at the second site. And Buford's claiming he reached out and grabbed the barrel. Well, that barrel gets awfully hot after a couple of rounds have gone through it. And you question how he was able to hang on to something like that. But uh, regardless, they managed to only hit him in the chin. It wasn't like what you saw in the movie where he had his jaw blown away in the movie. Uh, In reality, the round hit his chin. And it messed his lip up. you know, in the movie, they showed him having to wear a facial cast and all this. That didn't happen. Uh, did you happen to see? Did you happen to see the actual pictures or anything of the actual 
wound or a diagram or anything of where his wound oh, exactly I've got, I've is? I've got a photograph of his. Uh, I've got a photograph of his face. Uh, okay. After he was now, shot. do you think, in your professional law enforcement opinion, do you think it could have been self-inflicted? It could have been self-inflicted, or uh, I'll leave open a couple of possibilities. Uh, it could have been okay. self-inflicted. Uh, the shot that was uh, that LeVon heard and the noise that woke Diane up may very well have been uh, Pauline shooting Buford. Uh, but then wouldn't, wouldn't Diane have seen Buford bleeding? And if, if it would have been Pauline... Well, shooting. Well, imagine, imagine that you're trying to peek out a window and not be seen, and it's uh, uh, basically four o'clock in the morning. It's dark. Uh huh. You know, uh, is she going to see it or isn't she? It's hard to say. Uh, Good point. You know, so uh, uh, then, of course, there's always the possibility. There's always. Uh, I've always questioned about whether or not he had assistance with it. Uh, yeah. With state, and uh, you know he might have uh, said, "Hey, you know, make this look real. I've got to be hit." And uh, he uh, didn't have a lot of feeling in his uh, uh, in part of his face because uh, he had been shot in January of the same year, and. Uh, you know, he had a certain amount of numbness in his face. And so it was kind of like, well, you know, uh, possible that he thought, shoot me there again. I'm not going to feel it that much. Not considering the, uh, if it was done with a 30 caliber, not considering the muzzle velocity of what, uh, of the difference between that and the handgun, what the wound might be like. So it ended up being a little worse than he thought. But it wasn't mm-hmm. life threatening that uh, uh, a lot of people would think it would have been. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know that kind of and my part of my reasoning about uh, that he could have had uh, assistance was just like mm-hmm. it goes back story about him getting the uh, two guns from the car in Oklahoma, putting them in the trunk of his car, and then driving off. It's kind of like, uh, is it possible that he was looking for guns that he could dispose of and and uh, not be traceable back to that incident. But uh, mm-hmm. I think a, an important thing to remember about the timing of the ambush, and this is something that most people don't uh, really consider, is that, uh, you know, Toehead's in prison. Louise is dead. And contrary to the uh, movie Walking Tall, uh, basically Toehead and Louise were the state line. Mm-hmm. Uh, one else there, uh, really. Uh, so I guess it's possible. I leave doubt, I doubtful on my part that Toehead would have uh, had called somebody up and had him uh, try to kill Buford. It's kind of like why that particular time frame. Uh, you know, he's not going to be out of prison for another two years. Uh, you know, the, the, the state line is basically shut down whenever uh, he kills uh, Louise. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and that was on February 1st of 1966. The ambush was 18 months later. So it's kind of like it's a long time to wait to do this. And uh, what's the point when you do it other than, hey, you uh, got rid of Buford, and I don't think that was really the uh, idea. Uh, yeah. And that's something else, I guess, that you know, I might throw in here since I mentioned it. It's been 18 months. Uh, you know, it's, it's just the fact that uh, you look at the history, you've been credited with cleaning up the state line. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the movie shows him crashing his car into the electric pod at the end of the first movie. And, uh, you know, he gets rid of Buell Jaggers and uh, another individual when he crashes his car in there, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't understand is that uh, uh, the lucky spot of the, in in reality, the plantation club was closed down before uh, Buford ever became sheriff of McNary County. Uh, Alcorn mm-hmm. County was tired of all the uh, clubs that they had in Corinth and uh, the one out at the state line. So their way of handling was basically to say, hey, we're not going to renew any alcohol permits. And mm-hmm. so without being able to serve alcohol, the clubs just started closing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the plantation club was already closed. Uh, as far as the, across the street at the Shamrock, uh, you know, Louise didn't really like to use banks. I don't know how else to put mm-hmm. it. Uh, uh, you know, she was kind of secretive about her money, uh, how mm-hmm. much she had so on and so forth, I guess. Uh, who knows? It could have been one of those things where uh, maybe she didn't report all of her income, and and uh, if you didn't use the bank and you just stuffed it away, you didn't have to worry about the IRS, something like that. But the one right. thing that a lot, of, a lot of people don't realize is that, uh, you know, she is alleged to have kept her, uh, a lot of her money in her personal uh, residence there at the motel. And uh, mm-hmm. only her and Toehead knew where it was because at one time she and Toehead were lovers. Uh, and there you get to the point where, back to uh, Louise, for instance, is uh, one of those situations where uh, the IRS is actually about to take the uh, Shamrock because, uh, you know, she and Jack uh, Hathcock had built the place in 1957. They also got divorced in 1957, and Louise mm-hmm. took uh, the home in Corinth, and uh, Jack kept the state line properties. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that Jack continued to live there at the state line as he had a room in the back of the restaurant, a tiny room, barely big enough to put a bed and a chest in. And uh, But he lived there on the residence all these years that they were divorced. And, uh, you know, uh, Toehead, I think, saw that, uh, hey, I've got the uh, White Iris across the street. Plantation Club is no longer in business. And, you know, uh, if I get rid of Jack, well, I can just kind of roll in and take over the Shamrock. And, uh, you know, in the process, well, you know, Jack is murdered in, uh, uh, I think it was 62 and uh, or 63 and Louise claimed that uh, 
uh, Jack was drunk, came in, tried to rape her, and uh, so that she shot him. Uh, mm-hmm. Most people think that uh, Toehead was the one that shot him, and then uh, got Louise to tell that story just basically because she could get off with the claim of self-defense because mm-hmm. they were divorced. Uh, at any rate, uh, here Toehead is in prison. This uh, incident on that winter's day takes place where uh, uh, the couple claims that they've been robbed. Buford comes down with the deputies, all this and that, knowing that the uh, IRS is about to take uh, the uh, shamrock because that's never paid since he kept the place in his name. He's never paid taxes for years. And he owes about $110,000 in back taxes. And the IRS is about to come in and take the place. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation that Buford knew that she kept her money there and that if he was going to find it, uh, you know, it had to be then before the IRS took place. And uh, he used the uh, uh, situation of the robbery as a reason to get rid of Louise so that he would have time to go through and, and see if he could locate the money. Now, ironically, uh, and something I've tried to figure out, everybody tells me that uh, Toehead uh, got out of prison to come back for Louise's funeral. And what seems so uh-huh. odd about that is that uh, generally that only happens if you're married. And so, you know, there's a lot of rumors that they had indeed married. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that uh, while it Buford never did find the money, but the story goes that Toehead knew right where it was. And uh, while it, he was on uh, uh, furlough from prison, you know, he was escorted there by a marshal. And marshal to give him a little free time. And he went and retrieved the money and split it up between uh, four or five individuals who were then told while he was in prison. And, uh, you know, the. Uh, uh, IRS sold the uh, the motel, and uh, allegedly Toehead had all the money that she had stored there. But uh, it's it's like I say, it's really a uh, uh, when you talk to people that were there, they live their own part of that tale. Uh, you know, you find out it is so different from anything you saw in the movie. Right, but this story is so compelling, it's like it would be more interesting than what you see in the movie. Well, I've always thought that uh, had they made the movie uh, the way that uh, the real story goes, that it would have been a lot more interesting. For instance, we haven't even touched on Moonshining. Uh, right. That was a big there. And, uh, you know, uh, Buford was credited with, uh, I think it was 88 stills. Uh, he took down his, the first year. But, yeah, when you're researching it, you know, you find uh, the local newspapers reporting that number is 28 stills that he took down. And, you know, how they've really embellished the uh, number over the years up to 88. Uh, I talked to uh, an individual there that uh, uh, made me uh, his name is Paul David English. And they actually used his character in the second movie uh, and uh, called him 
Jackie Dobson. Uh, people that are familiar with the movies will recognize him, you know, uh, Pinky Dobson. Because uh, mm-hmm. in the movie, he and uh, Ray Henry were constantly trying to kill Buford. But uh, Paul, uh, uh, you know, when I was uh, vetting his story, uh, you know, he told me that, uh, uh, you know, that he'd been up there in the McNary County Jail and uh, told me he was in there for uh, murdering this guy. And it was odd, uh, you know, when I finally figured out that uh, Paul David English was Pinky Dobson, and I called him and uh, uh, asked him if I could, you know, speak with him, ask him a few questions. And, he, you know, he was kind of hesitant for a little bit, as a lot of people are when you get into this. And, uh, you know, uh, he said, well, what would you like to know? And I said, I'm just looking for the true story. I don't care if it's good, bad, indifferent as far as Buford is concerned. I'm just looking for, you know, what actually happened, and I told him that I was aware that he had uh, dealings with Buford. And his uh, the first thing he said is, oh, I, I thought you were one of them, and which kind of confused me. And I said, well, one of them who? You're going to have to tell me what you're talking about. And he said, well, he says, you know, it's like uh, they do a festival in Adamsville every year. And he says, uh, they asked me to come down and tell some of the stories about Buford and he said, I agreed to do it. And he said, uh, just a little bit before that I was supposed to go to the Marty and tell all these stories, one of the people that was helping organize the uh, festival uh, said, now, you know, you need to remember we're here to honor Buford, and uh, these people don't want to hear the bad stories about him. <laughs> and uh, he said, so when you called and uh, uh, wanted to ask questions, he said, I, I just thought you were one of them. But... Uh, when we got past that and I started uh, uh, asking him, I said, well, what were you in uh, uh, in jail for? And he told me murder. And I asked mm-hmm. if he would explaining, and he said, well, I was on leave from the military. And uh, he said, you know, was, uh, my leave was about over. I was about to go back. And he said, I went down for one last evening at the state line. And he said, this guy kept trying to pick a fight with me, all this and that. And we got into it. And uh, he said, I got the best of him. And he said, the next morning, uh, you know, he said, I'm going back that day. And he said, uh, this guy rides up on a motorcycle. And uh, mm-hmm. he said, I was at my dad's place. And uh, mm-hmm. he said he started mouthing. So he said, there's a gun there beside the uh, door. So I just picked it up and blew him right off that motorcycle. I mean, just told it like it was. And he said, so naturally I got arrested all this. Ended up in jail. Well, while he was in jail, he uh, worked as a trustee. And uh, after a while, so uh, for those that aren't familiar, a trustee is just merely another prisoner that uh, Mm -hmm. seems of good behavior. And uh, they would get out of their cells at certain points of the day and do some chores around the jail and uh, maybe uh, clean, maybe serve uh, meals, whatever you know, had to be done. And right. uh, so he had uh, kind of a free run of the place. And if you've ever been up in the old jail, uh, there's a door that goes out on the roof. And uh, the jail was inside the uh, the courthouse. 
And uh, uh, in the movie, it shows uh, Pinky Dobson. He's actually in the hospital uh, and uh, has his and under guard, and he has his girlfriend bring a rope in under her dress, and uh, he gets the rope, and he's able to scale down a, out a window at the hospital to escape. And uh, Paul David said, well, it was kind of like that with me. He said, uh, my wife would bring up uh, uh, some home cooking for me. And said, you know, they spent a lot of time whenever she would bring it up, checking it out at first to make sure that she wasn't bringing in any contraband. And said after a while, they got to where they didn't bother to check her. So he said, I talked her into bringing a rope. And he said, I, you know, put it in a mop bucket and uh, got it over close to the door. And he said, I could go outside and smoke on the roof, things like that. And he said, now mm-hmm. that I had the rope, uh, he said, I was uh, uh, going to go over the wall and, and uh, just kind of repel down. And that's how he escaped from jail, uh, as opposed oh, to wow. the movie uh, version being in the hospital. And uh, Buford had... Uh, uh, kind of like in the movie, chased him down, shot through the car, uh, hit hit him in the back, and partially paralyzed him. And uh, they were mm-hmm. telling me that a little bit later that he ran into Buford after he got out of jail. So they ran into him at Paul Moore's place because they lived there in Mickey. And uh, he just uh, told Buford, he said, you know, you shot me, you partially paralyzed me, so I can't find anybody that wants to employ me because of my condition. And she says, I understand if uh, people pay you, they'll let you moon, uh, you'll let them moonshine. And uh, mm-hmm. he said, Buford hesitated for a moment and asked him, says, well, if I let you set up a steel, where would you put it? And uh, he said, I gave him a location. And uh, he stopped me and said, no, you'll put it up on your dad's place. And you'll buy your worm, uh, which is the copper coil that is used in the steel for the condensation process. So you get your worm from this place, you buy your sugar from this place, uh, you you know, and tell him where you buy the product. And uh, mm-hmm. said, uh, you can make this many gallons, here's who you'll sell it to, and here's how much you'll sell it for. And I get a dollar a gallon. <laughs> and he said, I realized real quick that oh, wow. uh, I was labor and Buford was management. But he said, I never made so much money in my life. And uh, he said, you know, he'd send uh, one of his deputies around every couple of weeks just to make sure that I was staying in his guidelines of what I could do that didn't overproduce or anything like that. And, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, he was telling me while he was there in jail, uh, Christmas rolled around. And Mm -hmm. uh, he was afraid that... uh, his mom was in bad health. He said, I was afraid that she was going to pass, and I wouldn't get to have another Christmas with her. So he said, I asked Buford if uh, he'd let me out of jail to go home for Christmas. And he said, no, I can't do that, but I will, uh, uh, I'll take you out there. You'll be ready at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. I'll come by and get you. And he said, I didn't know if he was going to or not, but he said, I was hoping he would. So he said, 9 o'clock, I was ready to go. And sure enough, he walks in said, we go out to Mickey and went by the house. Mom wasn't home. And he said, I told him, he said, well, she's probably at my uncle's just down the road. He said, sure enough, we went down there. So I thought he was going to let me walk in and spend a few minutes with Mom and then go back to jail. And he said, we stuck around. We had uh, 
on Christmas dinner. We took a few photographs in the afternoon around about 3.30, 4 o'clock. Uh, you know, to leave. And he said, we got to spend almost the entire day out there. And, oh, wow. Uh, he said, uh, we go back, get in the car, and Buford asked him, says, uh, as they're driving out, says, uh, uh, have you ever been to the area where Pauline was shot and killed? And he said, well, I've been down by there, but not really since it happened. And mm-hmm. he said, well, would you like to see it? How are you in a hurry? The way he put it, he said, are you in a hurry to get back to jail? And uh, Paul David said, no, who's in a hurry to go back to jail? And so, so we got out right. there, and he's telling all about it. And he says, along the way, he pulls up some uh, photographs from the uh, sun visor. And he says, you know, it's pictures of Pauline after she's been shot. And he said, they were some of the most gruesome photographs I've ever seen. And uh, he said, he, we get out there, and he's telling me all about how it happened. And he says, you know, I began to think that he'd take me out there to get rid of me. Because he's telling the story with no emotion in his voice. And he said, I was really beginning to get scared. And he said, after he finished telling me the story, he said, well, are you ready to go to jail now? And uh, he said, yep, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> he said, went back wow. to jail. And he, you know, I, I left convinced that uh, he'd kill Paul Lane. But, uh, you know, uh, there were things that happened there, uh, you know, at the ambush that I haven't mentioned, you know, that just come to mind since I brought that up again, is, uh, for instance, uh, the day that uh, that happened. Uh, day or so before, the road had been uh, resurfaced, if you will. They, you know, how they'd take a county road and they'd cover it with oil and kind of a mixture of oil and tar, uh, tar and put chat on top of it. And they'd bladed out the ditches. And ironically, uh, you know, I told about how that uh, Dennis Hathcock and Johnny Harrison had been following Buford around that night. Well, uh, the next morning, Dennis gets called from Johnny because in the morning, even the word was out that the ambush had occurred. And uh, Dennis stayed with his grandmother because his parents didn't like for him to... Uh, you know, be down there at the old club or anything like that. And uh, he gets on his motorcycle and he rides down there where he heard the ambush was. And so on the way, he said, you know, I passed this spot along uh, at the highway or the uh, road. And he says, there's uh, shell casings and glass all over the place. But he said, you know, Johnny told me that it was at the bridge. So he says, I ride on down about two miles to get to the bridge. And he says, Here's R.C. Matlock, one of the uh, constables that was down there. And he's telling him, Hathcock, you need to get out of here. There's, you know, been a crime committed here. And, uh, uh, you know, telling him to leave. And Dennis is telling him, well, you know, uh, down the road, there's more shell casings and glass and all this. There's only a couple of uh, shell casings at the bridge, and they were of different caliber guns. And... uh, a little bit later, when the TBI shows up, Warren Jones, and they're all looking around. You've got one deputy over uh, off the bridge out in the woods saying he thinks he found a sniper's nest and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, uh, Warren Jones overhears uh, uh, Dennis telling one of the uh, 
uh, investigators that, hey, there's uh, shell casings down the road. Well, I guess Jones satisfied that, you know, he'd seen enough at the bridge that there wasn't much there. But go back down to the, uh, uh, about two miles down the road and where all the shell casings are. And uh, one of those things where uh, with the ditches being, having been bladed out and it's all fresh dirt, you know, uh, they found a uh, piece of uh, Pauline uh, scalp with the bladed blonde hair laying there in the ditch and uh, a pile of brains that uh, appeared to have been placed there rather than just flew out. The coroner, county coroner, and uh, uh, Clifford Coleman, county coroner was Ward Moore. And uh, mm-hmm. the former chair, uh, Clifford Coleman was there, and they're looking at these brains and laying there in the ditch and on the side of the road. And it looks like they've been just placed there rather than, you know, blown there from the force of the gun. Uh, but uh, you know, just uh, things like that were uh, just unbelievable. That, that uh, you know, to Jones, I think Buford was the prime suspect. Uh, he even called uh, Jerry Francisco, the, the uh, state medical examiner, because he uh, couldn't. Uh, concur on uh, on Pauline. Uh, this told me, said, you know, the, back in those days to have an autopsy done, both the uh, uh, medical examiner and the uh, uh, prosecutor had to concur on the need for it. And he said they, they couldn't concur. So he said none was done. And so Jones was so stymied over not being able to get an autopsy, he said he asked me to come out to the crime scene and take a look at it with him. And, you know, Francisco tried to explain to him, you know, what you do and I, what I do is different. You look at a crime scene, I look at a body. And mm-hmm. he said, I don't know if I can help at a crime scene. But he said while he was there that uh, uh, Jones uh, told him, said, well, you do know the pussers were separated. And goes through some of this that I've already mentioned. And uh, so obviously... You know, the TBI was aware that there was a marital dispute going on. And, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, it all that led nowhere. Uh, they, uh, Buford would uh, tell about the car that pulled up beside him during the ambush was a, a late model uh, Cadillac. And uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, either deep blue or black. And, of course, I guess it was 4, 4.30 in the morning. I can't really tell. But uh, mm-hmm. what he was describing was a car that matched uh, one that uh, W.O. Hathcock had owned. And it was kind of like, you know, in one way, I guess you think about it, it's kind of like, was he trying to set W.O. up as, you know, that being his car that was used to ambush him. The uh, only thing was, uh, W.O. had uh, sold that car a couple of weeks before, and apparently Future didn't know it. So, you know, it didn't work to, to set W.O. Uh, up. Mm-hmm. But uh, now, in the meantime, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, we don't have a whole lot longer left. We've got about eight minutes. 
Um, and okay. I do want you. There, there's so much more to the story, um, but I do want you to tell everybody how to look up your page to learn more about what you're talking about and to see these photographs and autopsy reports and things that you've been talking about tonight. Oh, yeah. Well, I have a, uh, uh, a page on Facebook. It's uh, called Buford Pusser, The Other Story. Uh, I've got a lot of uh, the FBI files that I've, I've used uh, on there. They're all in the photos section. So, you know, uh, uh, there's a lot of posts on there that give a lot of information. But as far as mm-hmm. photographs, now I've got photographs of the cars. I've got photographs of the different people. I've got a photograph of his wound. Uh, you know, TBI correspondence. Uh, just a lot of stuff that you mm-hmm. you can go to the uh, photo section and reference. And uh, you know, uh, where uh, I've interviewed people, a lot of people will permit me to use their name. Uh, others. You know, I, I, I understand it's kind of hearsay evidence when you can't find the name, but I'd rather right. tell the story and not have the name than just ignore it because, uh, uh, because you know, when you've interviewed them personally and, uh, you know, they've told you that, hey, this is my part of the story. This is the part that I live. This is the part that I can tell you about it. And uh, they may not know the other parts, but that's where I say it's kind of like you're connecting dots. You're taking all these right. stories that you told, and uh, you know you do see how it, it makes a makes a line that it turns out to be basically uh, a situation where, uh, to me, where Buford was in a marriage that he wanted out of, and uh, mm-hmm. that was the easiest way. Yep. Um, also, I want to mention Tuesday, uh, July twenty third, two weeks from tonight. I'm going to have you and Bonnie and Clyde historian Perry Carver on together. And we're going to be discussing basically history. Um, And, you know, Hollywood, people believing Hollywood history versus the real history without finding out for themselves. Yeah, that's something that uh, you know you run into uh, with the situation with that both Perry and I have run into everybody saw mm-hmm. the movie Bonnie and Clyde they assumed that oh, yeah. uh, that was a, a documentary which it wasn't <laughs> it's kind of like uh, Walking Tall there are so many things that are so different in that movie than what reality was and uh, you know Perry and I talked about what we go through sometimes because uh, People don't want to. They, you know, they think they know what happened because they saw a movie. And, right, uh, right. You know, it's not just these two movies. There's a lot of movies out there that you just assume uh, that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty factual. And then when you really get to dig into them, you find out there there's a lot of creative license that Hollywood has used to dramatize, and so they've embellished the stories in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And it's right. interesting. Yeah, well, I I've always been a huge Bonnie and Clyde fan, and I never realized the truth of their story until I started talking with Perry, 
and he's really opened my eyes up to a lot. Um, and I've had him on the show a couple times. I absolutely love talking to him. Um, you know, and I was one of those people. I was one of them, I guess, um, with the Buford Presser story. You know, the only history I knew was what I saw in Walking Tall. And until, you know, I started looking at your site and I, I talked to you and then I started kind of looking into it more. And it's, there's so much more to it. It's amazing. Well, you know, we were all like that. Uh, like I say, when I first saw that movie, I was a Buford Pusser fan. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I realized it probably didn't all happen that way, but, you know, I didn't think anybody could get hit with a stick like that and survive, not realizing that he never really carried a stick like that. But, you know, right. like I said, after the Internet came about, you're able to get on and uh, access a lot of these documents and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Know how to go about it. And uh, all of a sudden you find out that, uh, man, there's almost where Buford was saying that, that movie could be 75 to 90 percent true. You find it to be 75 percent to 90 percent false. But it's right. nothing what we saw. But we all we yeah. were all led to believe it. And uh, so you know, well, you know I always people. I always say that I one problem I have with the world is people take what they're told and what they're taught all their lives as facts without finding things out for themselves. And you know, even with, with the show, I always say, don't take what me or anybody else says as fact. Let it open up something in your mind to make you want to look into it and find out for yourself. Yeah, that's what I encourage everybody to do. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things, like with Walking Tall, that I always tell people is forget everything you think you know. Mm-hmm. And start researching with an open mind. And uh, that that goes with a lot. When of you stuff. do that, it, it <laughs> makes it a lot easier. Mhm. I agree. I agree. I could sit here and talk to you for hours about this. This is awesome. Um, but unfortunately, we are out of time tonight. Um. But I do really want to thank you for coming on, and for sharing all this uh, with us. Anytime, anytime. I'm so looking forward to to July 23rd. I cannot wait. Uh, myself as well. <laughs> I I, again, with you. me too, me too. Um, don't forget to check out Mike's page, uh, Buford Custer, The Other Story. It's an awesome, awesome page, guys, I'm telling you. And... Um, don't forget next Tuesday night on Footprints, I have our favorite psychic, Chris Garcia. So call in and get a free reading. Um, I want to thank everybody. Everybody have a great week and I'll see you next week, guys. <laughs>